everyone, and welcome back to the Full Circle Podcast. I'm your host, Gillian McMichael. So far this season, we've explored love through various lenses. We've spoken to an astrologist about finding your perfect match, a somatic sex coach to discuss the importance of self-love, sex and masturbation, a death doula about bringing more love to the end of the life process, and many, many others. In today's episode, I'm speaking to a woman who's experienced something truly tragic. She lost the great love of her life. Sasha Bates is a psychotherapist whose husband Bill died unexpectedly at the age of 56, and Sasha was at the age of 49. When Bill died, Sasha turned to writing, and this resulted in her first book, Languages of Loss. This became a searingly honest account of losing a loved one and practical guide to help anyone grieving. Before becoming a psychotherapist, Sasha spent 18 years in the TV business, where she wrote, directed and produced series such as Grand Design and How to Look Good Naked. Her fascination with people fueled her career as a filmmaker, but Sasha left TV behind and retrained as an integrative psychotherapist. And this is why her book is so fascinating. It is the intersection of human grief combined with her professional experience as a psychotherapist that has really made it truly remarkable. I am thrilled to have Sasha here to share her experience of losing her husband and to give you some practical advice on managing emotions after the loss of a loved one. Before we get into this episode, I want to remind you about my retreats that I'm hosting in Mallorca, Spain this coming May and June. If you're looking to reconnect, rediscover and reaffirm who you are, or are a coach who wants to advance their coaching practice, I hope you'll consider joining me for one of my personal development retreats. Stay tuned at the end of this episode for more information on each one. Until then, I'm excited to introduce you to Sasha. Welcome to the show. Welcome, Sasha, to the Full Circle podcast. I'm really delighted to have you on the show today, and it's going to be really lovely in terms of finding out a little bit more about you and your background and your story. And I know our listeners are going to be very interested in what you have to share too. So our topic is coping with grief after the loss of a loved one. So I thought before we get kind of into that topic, it'd be quite nice maybe for our listeners to find out a little bit more about what you do and yeah, well, um, I've had quite a varied career. I started, I did 18 years in the te- television industry, directing and producing, and then left to become a psychotherapist and a yoga teacher. The two things worked, you know, work, work, work quite well together. But I've also, even though I left television, I kept um, sort of an ongoing sideline interest in journalism. So I carried on writing um, alongside being a psychotherapist. And then four years ago, my husband Bill died very suddenly, um, and it obviously completely threw me. And well, a few things happened really. One, I realised that as a psychotherapist, everything I thought I had known and learned about grief was very different when it actually happens to you. And I, I felt somewhat guilty in a way. All the people that I had seen, you know, as psychotherapy clients who were grieving and who I thought I was sort of doing and saying the right things when actually I had no clue what they were really going through. But that sort of came a bit later, really. More what happened was that in the wake of his death, I 
felt that my life had just completely been upended. We don't have children, so it felt like my entire family had just disappeared. He was, you know, my best friend and my soulmate, and we did everything together and had a whole future planned. And suddenly all of that, obviously, you lose him, but you also lose your future. You lose your sort of sense of faith in the world, in there being any justice, in, you know, having any certainty. So... Being in this kind of maelstrom of, of confusing feelings, I didn't feel ready to go back to work as a therapist, so I put all that on hold. But I also found that just quite naturally, I started writing about what I was feeling. I'd written scripts for 18 years in television, I'd been a journalist for about 10 subsequent to that. So it felt almost like natural for me just to start trying to write down my feelings. And as a therapist, I also know that journaling is quite a good good way to kind of make sense of feelings that you can't really make sense of. So I was writing down what I was going through as a way of trying to make sense, trying to get it out. Um, and gradually, as the weeks went by, I realised that this sort of outpouring of emotion was being kind of joined by another voice, like my therapist voice was sort of coming in and saying, oh, I get how this matches up with theory. And I think what is happening here is this. And actually, if you think about it in these terms... And I realised that it was becoming a conversation between my grieving self, who was pouring out all this kind of um, unmediated emotion that didn't make a huge amount of sense, and the voice of my therapist self that was then kind of explaining and almost holding the hands of my grieving self through it. So that carried on for a few more months. And then I, I thought, Do you know what, I think this is really helping me. Um, and I think it potentially could help others actually having this dual perspective of, of the feeling side plus the cognitive intellectual, intellectual side. And then it sort of took a lot on the life of its own. I found an agent, I found a publisher, and then before I knew it, this, this book, Languages of Loss, was, was out there in, in the world. And I discovered that what had started as very much um, a way of helping myself became something that was helping others. And that was just such an added bonus, really, to think that, you know, it was also useful to other people and in getting feedback from other grievers and therapists who also sort of said oh my god yeah I realize now how, how badly wrong I was was getting it I kind of thought oh this is you know Bill's death is meaning something to others it has a wider significance yeah. so it really kind of helped me through that first year actually. I think it's interesting isn't it because you were quite I mean I would say that you were quite young when your husband passed away he's what 49 so still very young on in your life and as you said with lots of things to potentially look forward to and to do and and like you said I suppose it's difficult when all that gets stopped and actually taken from you so I can really understand from what you're sharing there how difficult that time must have been so in terms of that you know you said that you'd been giving guidance and support obviously through your psychotherapy work that you've been doing and and then realizing so what were the biggest differences for you you know in terms of that's the, the kind of the messages or the support you were giving others but then going through it yourself what what was different about it well I think I hadn't understood just how life-changing and life-upending it could be. I kind of thought, you know, that there was a process that you go through and you gradually get a little bit better every day. And um, I hadn't understood that actually you become a different person. A part of you dies alongside um, your loved one. Um, and you're never going to go back <laughs> to how things were. And that the new you that emerges is a very different you. 
I was also very aware that the, I mean, there were several grief theories, but the one that most people know about is the five stages theory. And I realized that that is just so limited. There's, they're not stages for a start. There's no linearity to it. They're not discrete. And also it's very limited. There's far more than sort of five things going, going on. So I was just very well aware of how limited that model was. And I didn't really understand why it's become so ubiquitous and why everybody knows mm. it. I understood the need for a sort of framework to sort of hang on to for people to kind of think, oh, well, this is making sense to me. And if I just get through this, I can get to the next one. So I understood the need for a, those sort of footholds. But I also realised that actually they can be just as disconcerting as they can be comforting if your grief doesn't match them or that there's an expectation that it's just going to be a progression so they're slowly getting better rather than understanding that it's a sort of a spiral and you just kind of you'll go in and out of feeling a little bit better and then a little bit worse and that, that, that there's never any end to it I imagine you know I'm four years in now and I'm still learning new things about the process and I imagine I will for the rest of my life. I don't think you ever get to a point where you're over it. You just gradually learn different ways of adapting to the new phases that you go through. But again, even the word mm. phases is difficult. You know, I tend to sort of think of like the shapes or the or the flavours of, of grief. So try and find words that don't have any sense of progression. Because, well, yes, obviously it does get easier, as in that the, the really bad moments happen they're fewer and further between but it's you know there are still times when it you feel plunged back to as though it happened yesterday and um if you if you're not aware that that can happen even like I say four years on or I imagine 20 years on you can think that there may be something wrong with you or that you're not working hard enough at, at getting through it so I guess I suppose those are the, the sort of the headline thank you for that so just for those listeners that are not aware of those five stages, could you just share with us what those five stages are? Because what I'm also hearing from you is that it's still, it is a very personal experience. And although these five stages have taken off and, and most people are aware of them, it's not necessarily that it goes in that linear order or, or there's really a much shape or form to it. But would you share those five stages anyway, just for our audience? The sort of traditional idea is that we go through denial, anger, bargaining, depression and acceptance. And I think all of those things are in there, but there's a lot more things in there. The the way I sort of conceptualised it in my book, which is not to say this is how anybody else would, but for me, thinking about it in terms of visualisations and sort of experiences were, were more helpful. So in fact, the way that I ended up having chapters in my book sort of reflected some of different feelings that I had. And it was like an oceanic metaphor, almost, that mm. Bill's death was like an implosion, the initial thing, the one-off event of the implosion of my life. It was just absolutely like a we were a happy, safe tanker sailing the, the seas together. And that suddenly was raining down. The shards of what had been my life were raining down on me. And I was in a very deep, dark ocean that was pummeling me. And then I felt I was flailing, really. I kind of, I was trying to find which way was up. And then I was kind of gradually trying to uh, find ways to kind of grab the bits of detritus around me and make a raft. So then I was floating. And then I was balancing because I was managing to get on the raft and I was managing to have some semblance of a life. But all the time, very aware that I was still on an, on a very tumultuous ocean and kept falling back in and clambering back on, on the raft. And 
So I had uh, flailing, then floating, then balancing, then uh, sailing, and then swimming. And even sailing, which was, you know, you kind of managed to recreate a boat that is still pretty stable. You're still on a boat, you're still on an ocean, and storms are still going to come, and you can be plunged in at any time. And then my final chapter was swimming, because I thought you know, long and hard about it. And it would have been neater to have a final chapter that was more like landing. It's like, right, I've made it back onto solid ground and here we here we go. But that just didn't seem to accord with my experience because I don't think you ever do quite land. Your ship can get bigger and you can fall in less often. But I quite like the idea of finishing it with the notion of swimming because it felt like, yeah, sometimes you'll be thrown back overboard and you have to swim back, back to your safe place but sometimes you can actually choose to go swimming swimming doesn't have to mean you're just fighting for your life which is how it can feel in the early days swimming can be I'm choosing to revisit the memories I'm choosing to be empowered and to get back in the water and say yeah I can control this I can enjoy the memories and yes sometimes they're going to be painful but I can revisit those the painful memories alongside the joyful ones because I've actually learned to swim the waves aren't going to crush me anymore. I can I can ride them a little bit. So that's just an example of how, for me, those more kind of verb-like, endlessly changing, there's always going to be more weather kind of imagery, that to me made more sense than the fact that these are stages or that you call them depression or denial or... Which is not to say that I didn't and still get very depressed from time to time or that I'm not getting angry a lot of the time but they're not discrete phases that right done the anger now we're moving on yeah so as as we said so not necessarily always linear and clean in those ways of describing it because you know obviously I've, I've not lost a partner thank goodness from my experience so far in my life but I have lost family members and things like that and I've seen others who've lost partners and it is a very challenging time because, as you said, it's not something that goes away. It sits with you. And I, I think your your lovely description of being in the ocean swimming, which can feel empowering, but also still has choppy waters, in my words, choppy waters, and I suppose an undercurrent as well that can sometimes take you by surprise. Absolutely, yeah. It's ex- exactly that. You can't you can't change the weather. You can control your response to the weather, but you can't control the weather um, or the size of the waves. You can just learn how to manage the bigger waves. And throughout all of your training, because obviously, you know, you've been in, like you said, in TV and media for, for all those years, but when you moved into them being a psychotherapist, did you apply any of the principles that you helped others? I know you wrote and you journaled and things like that, but what else did you use to help you through this process for yourself? Yeah, I think one of the things that helped me was being able to, at times, not always, lift myself up out of the overwhelming flood of emotions and use my cognition and my understanding to sort of go back to the books in a way and look at theoretical approaches to psychotherapy. And that was a way of kind of understanding it that helped me get little moments of respite from the flood of emotions so for instance looking at uh, going back to the psychodynamic theories that began with with Freud and and the object relations school which understands that we all have defenses that we use throughout our lives to kind of help us navigate and just understanding how in grief or in any crisis really 
we sort of double down on those defences. So if we do tend to suppress things and use cognition as a way of escaping the feelings, we're going to do that even more, which was something I did. Or if we tend to want to act out our emotions through doing loads of sport and kind of getting it out that way, we tend to do that more. So there's a lot of the stuff that we would do naturally that we kind of double down on and do even more. So the psychodynamic theory of defences was quite helpful in understanding how all the ingrained ways that we have of dealing with life is coming more into play. Or I would look at the existential mm. psychotherapy theories, which are much more looking at making meaning and saying that life becomes bearable if we can make meaning and find purpose. So at certain points, that was really helpful to me. I would also look at body psychotherapy, which um, kind of helps us see how the mind and body are so connected and that a lot of grief can become embodied and we can express ourselves through the way we get aches and pains or illnesses or a sense of heaviness or tiredness and understanding it through that lens or something like transpersonal therapy which is a way of exploring whether a world beyond or a connection to something bigger than yourself can help you navigate through life so that might be religion yeah. or it might be finding a, a political allegiance or a, a community or even finding a, a sort of maybe a sort of spirituality through something like gardening where you're connecting with something that's not just about your life but it's about kind of giving back um in in whatever that way that means to you so yeah. the various various different approaches all had something to offer for me to understand why I was reacting as I was yeah, and it makes total, total sense. And I've done a lot of reading around quite a lot of the things that you've talked about. And one of the things that I use when I'm in coaching, when I'm coaching people, is that kind of connection to the somatic. So in terms of that body-mind connection. And I think you mentioned something earlier on around that sense of how grief can show up, especially if you're not expressing it or not kind of processing it potentially. You know, there's no right or wrong way of doing it. But if you're holding on to things, that how that can then start to really manifest in the physicality and can really kind of show up in your body in different ways. Yeah, when, when it's too much for the brain to cope with, which I think when suddenly the person that you thought you were spending your life with is suddenly gone overnight, it is too much for the for the mind to take on, on board. So um, I think... Yeah that kind of shock of, of numbing, numbing, not being able to take it in, that's a sort of, that's a protective mechanism. But if that goes on too long or too often, then yes, it, it often can come out through physical means because you haven't got the words for it. And so your body has to express what your mind can't express, really. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing all that. I think it's really insightful and it just shows that there is lots of different ways to investigate and to support and and to find different methods and approaches that might be relevant for you because I think what I'm realizing through this conversation is that there isn't any right or wrong of how you deal with grief you just deal with it as you do and I think it is a very unique and individual thing and so I was wondering with your experience and I know you you kind of like you said you took to writing those first 12 months and that really helped you what advice do you have for those that might be you know kind of dealing with this at the moment what advice from your own experiences could you suggest that they follow or take it's always hard to give advice because grief is so individual and unique but I think the universals are that you will 
need to be very compassionate towards yourself and very forgiving of the fact that you might not recognize yourself. You might find yourself acting and behaving and thinking in ways that feel really unfamiliar. And rather than beating yourself up about that or being scared by it, allowing yourself to just say, do you know what, I'm just going to go with whatever... I feel I need today and if that means I have to do less or do more or I need to just actually be with different people or be on my own just be able to say that's okay I can do whatever I need to do today and very much stay in the present moment and try not to project too far into the future because thinking too much about the future can be really really overwhelming so just think about what do I need to do to get through today and if that means having to let people down or say I'm not going to do the thing I thought I could do just to be okay with that and to make sure that you surround yourself with with friends that understand that you're going to be acting very unpredictably for quite a long time and that it's not anything that they've done it's just you don't recognize yourself half the time and so yeah I think being compassionate giving yourself permission exploring ways to express yourself through things like I don't know art or music or gardening or swimming or walking or getting in touch with nature just exploring lots and lots of different ways that you can be with yourself and experience yourself in calming nurturing ways because sometimes it is just going to feel really really overwhelming and the more tools you have at your disposal that you know actually doing this thing helps me stay calm and helps me just be in the moment and not get too panicked about what's coming ahead but also I think finding ways to commemorate and memorialize your your loved ones so whatever that means to you whether it's going through photos whether it's having a park bench or a particular walk that you go on or holding a dinner for friends where you bring memories and and chat about the person just finding ways to keep their memory alive and keeping talking about them letting know your letting your friends know that you want to keep talking about them if indeed you do you may not want to but not thinking actually I'm not allowed to keep talking about them it's like it's trying to keep them alive in whatever way that works for you I think that's really important yeah I can really hear that when you're speaking about that like you mentioned before that actually as you move forward in your life you know they're not going to not be part of that they're still part of who you are because you spent so much time with them and loved them so much for you obviously writing was one of the ways that you could explore this but how have you done just that I suppose in terms of Bill how have you how does he show up now for you in your in your relationship with self and relationship with others yeah I mean I feel I I definitely feel his presence I feel like I live my life trying to be more Bill I very much kind of think okay well what would he do in this situation (laughs) and I try to make sure that I'm living my life for both of us I'm trying to do the things that we would have done together and that he would want me to do and he was a much nicer person than I am so often when I feel like oh god I don't want to do that I can think no Bill would have done it Bill would have I don't know gone to the funeral of a very obscure person at the other end of the country or something I I, I will go because he would have done that one thing that came across that kind of surprised me when the book was sort of received by the the outside world it's funny what people see in it that you didn't know were were there everyone that read it said oh this is such a tribute to Bill and it's a love story and I just kind of had written what I 
felt. I hadn't ever sort of really thought this is a, a, a love letter to him, but that was how it was received. So I hadn't really got how much that was going to come across and how comforting that would be to people to think that, you know, a love can continue and it doesn't die when the person dies. And I think being able to tell stories about him, I get... I gather his friends together twice a year. We, we all get together, a big group of us, on his birthday and on the anniversary of his death. And we just, you know, go out for dinner and we tell say memories and we bring photos and we tell stories. And I mean, in the early days, not so much now. I did things like I'd do little sort of quizzes about his life and I'd give away sort of silly little prizes of, you know, his possessions. Um, you know, just funny things, really, because he was a very funny man. Mm -hmm. And once I did uh, Billy Bingo, where I kind of did bingo cards with like phrases that were <laughs> unique to him and you know his favorite words and, and things so you know just silly funny th they, with Bill it had to be funny so you know he would have been furious if he thought we were all being terribly po-faced and, and solemn you know we always had to sort of tell the silliest jokes and remember him in the silliest way and the funniest way so um I do little things like that I actually and I'm not saying everybody can and should do this but luckily I, I have enough sort of connections in the media and the theatre world that I was able to set up a theatrical bursary so I've actually in conjunction with the local theatre I've set up something called the Bill Cashmore Award which is a bursary to help youngsters between the age of 18 and 25 who wouldn't who want to work in the theatre as writers or directors or actors and who other who wouldn't get a chance it's a kind of almost like an apprenticeship that I fund for, uh, or the Bill Cashmore mm. Award funds for a year, enabling them to write and direct and produce their own play and put it on a professional stage. And the fundraising for that and the mentorship that is involved with that means it gives me an excuse to keep like sending out newsletters to people that knew Bill and to say we're doing this on his behalf and do you want to contribute either financially or offering your time or by coming to see the show and so it's just sort of keeping his his memory alive in in that way I mean like I say that's rather an elaborate thing and I'm, I'm lucky enough to have you know have a foot in the sort of industries that I'm able to do that but you know it could be so many people do things like they'll do sponsored runs and they'll raise money for a charity of that person that was dear to that person um so there's all sorts of ways that you can kind of keep their memory alive even if it is just you know meeting once a year and going for a walk and, and talking about them but I think it is really impo mm -hmm. important to just keep keep saying their name keep keep remembering the funny and touching things they did it sounds to me as well though through this process that you've got and maybe I'm I don't want to make any assumptions but feels like there's a good support network there would you say that is also important when you do lose somebody to have that network available to you to rely upon Absolutely. That was one of the most heartwarming things that I, I realised. When Bill first died, I thought, well, you know, Bill's my only family. That's it. I'm completely on my own. And I hadn't understood how fabulous my friends and, and his friends and his family and my family would be in sort of stepping up and becoming, you know, I've redefined the notion of family and I now know that I'm not alone. And I would never have known how amazing my friends were, really. And I would never have had such deep connections and deep relationships with them if we hadn't be, all been through this this massive loss together. And I think understanding the value of relationships and how important it is to nurture them and how 
love doesn't just have to be directed, you know, at one person and how actually if you expand your notion and you expand your heart really to allow it to take in more people and to go through something awful together and you you get bonded in a way that I would not really have believed was was possible. So I think in a way your heart gets bigger because it has to expand to be both of you. Like I say, I feel like I have to do the things that he would do, but also just to see how his friends have stepped up and how incredible those new relationships and networks have become. Yeah, absolutely. So through this process of this journey that you've been on, I'm assuming you've learned a lot about yourself as well through this process. So I'm wondering if you could share some of those with us in terms of What have you learned, not just about the process of grieving and bereavement, but what have you learned about yourself as a woman, as a human being? Oh, gosh, yeah. Well, a lot, really. I mean, I have learned, I suppose, following on what I just said, I've learned that I am loved, which I don't think I had taken on board before. I hadn't realised that I am I'm loved by other people as well. Um, and I have learned that I am able to ask for support when I need it and that I will be met in that need. I've learned that I'm stronger than I ever thought I, I was. Um, if anyone had told me, you know, Bill's going to drop down dead overnight when you're 49 and you'll have to carry on without him, I think I, I, I would have said, well, there's no way, you know, I, I, I won't survive that. So I've learned that actually I can survive my worst nightmare coming true and that I can survive that amount of pain and that amount of upheaval and and come through it with resilience and tolerance and more self-awareness. I think I know myself an awful lot better than I ever did before. Mm. I think I've learned that creativity can be a life raft, that pouring myself into mm. writing and kind of creating things like like the scholarship in his name, the Bill Cashmore Award, and teaching, which I now do a lot more. I teach, I teach therapists about grief. So I've learned that um, I can do a lot more than I thought I could. I've learned that I'm not nearly as afraid. Once the worst thing in the world has happened to you and you've come through it, then there's not a lot else to be afraid of, really. You kind of think, well, yeah, I can survive anything mm-hmm. if I can survive that. I'm not afraid of death. I kind of feel like I know now that I feel Bill's presence so intensely. I feel like that there is, you know, I've got a deeper sense of spirituality and that I kind of feel, yeah, we do carry on, love carries on and maybe not in this form, but I, I know that there will be a, a kind of another meeting somehow in another realm because I definitely feel he's still around mm-hmm. and that I actually, you know, I don't mind dying. I don't, I don't actively want to die, but I, I that death has lost its terror for me because I feel like I know that I'll be with him again so yeah I think I've learned a lot really I've learned the goodness in other people I've learned the strength in me I've learned that this realm is not the only realm it's amazing and thank you for sharing that because such rich learnings and like you said things that perhaps you'd not realized before you've, you've now got the opportunity to experience those learnings but also that love that you have from other people as well it's just tremendous so moving forward now do you have any more plans to do any more writing or anything else around this topic or subject matter? Yeah, well, I, I've written two more books, actually, since Languages of Loss. The, the first one is also on the subject of grief. It's called A Grief Companion. 
and it came out the year after Languages of Loss. And it's more of a practical guidebook in a way of how to navigate through particularly the first year of grief when things can feel, you know, you, you can feel most confused and most most upended. On every page, pretty much, I say, you know, this may not this may be helpful, this may not be helpful. It will depend on your personality and where you are you know, with your grief on this particular day. So these are not commandments or telling you you ought to feel like this or that you ought to do this thing, but it's some people have found these things to be helpful. And if you think about it this way, then this may help you to understand why you're feeling the way you do. So that's divided into four sections, mind, body, spirit, and the everyday. So it's looking at all the ways you could, mind is about how you can cognitively engage with your grief body is the more the kind of the bodily focused ways spirit obviously is things like meditation or communing with nature or finding a spirituality if that's something that is interesting to you and then the everyday is you know advice on awful things like probate and funerals and how to navigate anniversaries or that kind of thing so yeah so that came out last year uh, that's called a grief companion and then I've written a book which comes out in June actually June the 9th which is not about grief mm-hmm which is called Yoga Saved My Life. And that's looking at the parallels between psychotherapy and yoga because I'm, I'm a yoga teacher and as well as being a psychotherapist. Mm-hmm. So I look at how the two things mirror each other very closely. So so that's um, about to come out. So I'm currently, you know, gearing up for all the promotion around that. And then, yes, I do have an idea for a fourth book. But I'm also, I've, I've gone back to, I forgot to say that I, after a very long break, I went back to working as a psychotherapist again. So I do also have clients. So I'm back at work as a psychotherapist. Amazing. So, and I'm looking forward actually because yoga saved my life. I too am very passionate about yoga and I can see that connection. So, it'll be really interesting when that comes out. So, thank you for sharing that about your publications, past and coming up. Feels like it's quite an exciting time in many ways. So, where can people get hold of you if they want to find out more about what you do or even more about the Bill Cashmore Award? Where can we find out more about you? Oh, well, yeah, I've got a, a website, which is sashabates.co.uk. I'm on Instagram at, at sashbates. That's sash, S-A-S-H, Bates, rather than Sasha. Somebody else had the temerity to take Sasha Bates, so I'm Sash Bates on Instagram. So on the website, there is stuff about me as a psychotherapist, me as a yoga teacher, the stuff about the Bill Cashmore Award, the stuff about the books, and the stuff about the teaching I do. Like I say, I do some trainings for therapists about grief, about the value of yoga in the psychotherapeutic practice, about trauma-sensitive yoga, about things like self-regulation. So that I teach various workshops. Most of them are aimed at therapists, but I also do some for you know the general public who, who want to maybe spend a day exploring their grief via a workshop as well. So most of the information is or will be soon on the website and the books are in, you know, they're in all the bookshops or Amazon or Waterstones or Hive or bookshop.org. So you can get them through all the normal channels. Yeah, that's lovely. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us and all what you've been doing and have done. And I'm sure like I have, I've, it's been a really interesting conversation and I've learned a lot. So thank you so much for sharing your story with us, Sasha. Not at all. Thank you for having me. It's been a, been a delight. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. 
I'd love to take a moment and tell you about our wellness retreats that will be happening in May 2022 in Mallorca, Spain. My team and I have created four immersive retreats that allows you to take a step back from all the stresses and strains of your daily life in order to focus on your physical, mental, emotional and spiritual well-being. From coaching mastery, mindfulness and meditation, conscious living and so much more, we offer a nurturing and truly experiential life-enriching environment where you'll reconnect, rediscover and reaffirm who you are and what you want in your life. If you're interested in learning more, head to the fullcircleglobal.com website and click the retreats tab. In the meantime, stay well, invite joy and curiosity into your life and see you soon.